needy hearts, Lord, we, uh, we recognize our, our uh, weaknesses, Lord, and how finite we are. We recognize our um, lack of vision and, and, and so often our lack of understanding. And, and Lord, we're amazed sometimes at our own stupidity and how uh, foolish we can be. And, and Lord, inside of all that, we come to a time like this to remember, Lord, that, uh, that you are aware of our goings. You said that you know our frame and remember that we're just dust, that you're not um, put off by our errors, Lord, and your love doesn't cease when we're foolish. And and so, Lord, we just come this morning. We ask that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would uh, remind us again this morning, Lord, that it's not just that you're with us. It's not just that you saved us, Lord, but but God, that you have a plan that uh, involves every detail of our lives. Lord, you've got a, our lives in your hand to the minute and to the hair of our head and uh, to the breath and the heartbeat, Lord. All of those things are held in your hand. And, and Lord, we, we want to walk in your purposes. We want to know you more, Lord. We want you to win, Lord, the wrestling match that, that we have with you. And so we just pr- bring ourselves to you this morning, Lord, and pray that your will would be done in our lives, Lord, and um, we ask that you'd open your word to us. So let your Holy Spirit come, Father. Let your word speak to us and and help us to hear what the Spirit would have to say to us this morning. Apply this to us individually. Give us understanding, Lord. You said um, that heaven and earth will pass, but your word will not pass away. Lord, you said that uh, every jot, every tittle is inspired and that it accomplishes what you please. And And Lord, so we pray, make it live, make it live to us this morning. And we make that our prayer. We commit our hearts to you with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are, um, good morning, gentlemen. We're in, did I say 16? 17. We're in Genesis 17. Um. I don't, I don't typically give messages titles, uh, especially on Saturday mornings, but um, I wrote next to the heading for this chapter, um, When Time and Purpose Collide. Uh, and that's a great, great way to kind of um, summarize what, what's about to take place uh, in Abram's life. We realize uh, that at this point that we come to, he's been walking with God uh, as far as we know it, at least, is recorded for almost 25 years. Uh, and so it, interesting for us that in six weeks of studying Abram's life, um, we've gone through 25 years of his history with God. And, um, of course, God placing all of this in the Bible for us because Abraham is an example of everyone who has a relationship with God in the same way that we do. And so everything that he goes through, we go through. And, uh, um, and so now 25 years into this, what we've seen is that God has met with Abram in every chapter of the Bible that his stories recovered, recorded, except for one. Uh, we saw that he met with Abram before the narrative starts. So sometime in what would have been Genesis 11, God came to him and said, leave your father's house and gave to him a promise and a hope that there was something more for him than what he was living in Babylon. Then in chapter 12, once he separated from his father and came down into the land that he would inherit, God met with him again and he gave him just a little bit more of the promise. 
another facet of it was revealed to him there, that this land I'm going to give to you and to your descendants, and I'm going to make you a blessing. Um, Then in chapter 13, after Abram separated from Lot, Uh, God met with him again. There was another meeting and encounter where God expanded the promise even yet further and let him in a little bit more in on the plan that God had for him. Then um, as we came into chapter 14, we saw Abram meet with Melchizedek, who was an incarnation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, this mysterious man who we know nothing else about other than that he was a king and a priest There's only one person that can be both a king and a priest, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And he met with Abram, gave him bread and wine, and he blessed him, and he said, Blessed are you, Abraham, possessor of heaven and earth. And just just deepened that relationship a little bit more, showing him the communion uh, that God intended, that he wanted to have with man. And so the promise deepened, the relationship deepened there. Then in chapter 15, When Abram cut covenant with God, remember, Abram said, how will I know that I'll inherit this promise? And God said, let's get, let's get a contract together, cut the animals in half, put, put them separated. We'll walk through together. I'll make a promise to you an oath. But then of course, Abram fell asleep. God walked through by himself, showing that it's not a two-sided thing. It's a one-sided thing. God himself is the one who's making the promise. God's the one who's going to keep the promise. But then establishing, saying, you will possess this land, enlisting 10 nations that will be dispossessed, that Abraham might then have that land. And so the promise being deepened. Then we come to chapter 16, which we looked at last week. And it's the only chapter in the the, the narrative so far that God did not meet with Abraham nor appear to him in any way. And it's fitting that it's the only chapter wherein Abram, in a sense, stepped outside the boundaries of the promise and that he tried to help God out. He uh, and Sarah, they hatched this plan. Hey, we've got an Egyptian handmaid. You're barren. You're not having any kids. She can bear upon the knees. We'll have a child by her. We'll call his name Ishmael, and he will be the one that God will use. And so they step in front of God. They shortcut the plan and the timing that God has for things. They take it into their own hands. And amazingly, only chapter, God never shows up to Abraham. And for 13 years, God is silent in Abram's life. While Abram thinks, okay, we've done it. We've helped God. We're moving along. 13 years of absolute silence. Now, we come into chapter 17, Abram, 99 years old, it tells us in verse 1, it says that when Abram was 90 years old and 9, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And so the first words that Abram hears in 13 years now, is that I am Almighty God. And that's kind of a a bad uh, translation of of that word that's used. It's El Shaddai in the Hebrew. And what it literally means is the all-sufficient God, that I am the all-sufficient God. Now, he is almighty and that he's sovereign and able to do whatever he wants. But what he's saying to Abraham here is he's saying, I am absolutely sufficient for all. It's very much like what God said to Moses when Moses said, what's their name? When they asked me to to tell them who sent me, what's your name? And God says, I am. And the idea is that he's the all-sufficient one. Whatever is needed, 
he can do it, that there is nothing that will be impossible for God. And the Bible declares that over and over again, that God is uh, able to do anything. Twice in Jeremiah, he says, I am the God of all flesh. Nothing is impossible for me. Nothing is too hard for me, God says. When Gabriel came to Mary, Mary said, how is it that I'll be with a child being that I'm a virgin? And Gabriel looked at her and said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. When Jesus was talking about righteousness, being possessed by a rich man, the disciples said, who then can be saved? And Jesus' reply was, with men, it is impossible, but with God, nothing shall be impossible. And it's important that we recognize that the God that we serve is the God that can do all things and that there is no limitation with him. He is not bound by natural law. He is not bound by human government or natural processes. There is nothing that binds him. He's not bound by our personality. He's not bound by our past. He's not bound by our disposition. There is absolutely nothing in us at all that can stop God from doing what he's going to do, whether it be in us, through us, or for us. He can do all things. And what he is saying to Abraham here and declaring his name to be this way is that nothing is impossible for me and that there is nothing I don't suffice in. I'm the all-sufficient God. Your place, Abram, is walk before me. And the result will be that you will be complete. The word perfect there when it says be thou perfect is not that he would live sinlessly perfect. He will not live sinlessly perfect. He has not lived sinlessly perfect. There's been nothing about Abram that's been perfect. We've seen that and we will continue to see it as we go through. That's not the idea. The idea behind what God is saying here is that if you walk with me, your life will be complete. I'm the all-sufficient one and sufficient to fill all things. And that's what I'm asking of you, Abram. Walk before me and you'll experience my sufficiency within your life. And then God goes on and he says in verse 2, he says, and I will make my covenant. Now he uses the words, I will, right there. He's going to use those words 14 times in this chapter. The words, I will. And this is God saying, I will do. And then he uses the word covenant there. He uses that word 13 times within this chapter. And so God's saying, I will covenant. I will promise. I will keep. I will do. He doesn't say you will. He says, I will. Keep my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So expanding on the promise even more. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. It's a great position to be in when God appears to you or draws near. <laughs> and if you're going to listen to God, that's the posture you want to be in, on your face before him, the God of the universe. And God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations and neither shall your name any longer be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for a father of many nations, I have made you. Now, the, the name Abram means high father. And the name Abraham means father of many nations. The only difference in the Hebrew pronunciation of it is that it adds the ch sound. You know that Hebrew um, 
thing. <laughs> that, that if you're listening in that language, it's very identifiable what it is. But, the, but what the is, is literally the breath. That's all it is. It's, it's adding the breath, the And in the Hebrew language, the breath is the ruach, is the word that they use for it in the Hebrew, and it's translated spirit. It's interesting that that's what's added to Abram's name in this, is just the the breath of God. And what's amazing is that in this chapter, God adds the to both Abram and to Sarah. <laughs> they both, Sarai's name will be changed to Sarah, and Abram is Abraham. And so both of the two of them are endued with some spirit uh, of God in this, in this chapter, in their very name, which is, speaks of their nature. And so a father of many nations, I have made you. And then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, and I will make you exceeding fruitful. That's the first time God has said that to Abram in the context of the promise. He says, you will be exceeding fruitful. And I will make nations of you, plural, and kings shall come out of you. So that's new too. God hasn't said that to Abram in any of the other times he's, he's made his promise to him that kings would come out of him. We know it will come to pass. King David, the greatest king perhaps that the world's ever seen. Solomon, the wisest and richest king that the world has ever seen. These came out of Abram from his, uh, his descendants. And he says, and I will establish my covenant, there's the word again, between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed, your descendants, after you. And, God goes on, I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger. That would be the land of Canaan, the land that is even to this day the land of Israel. For, and watch this, an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So by incontractual covenant, God deeded the land of Canaan or of Israel to the Jews. It is theirs, not because they took it, not because they're occupying it, not because they have a strong military. It is theirs because God gave it to them. And they're in it because God ordained that they would have it and that they would be in it. And God has the right and the ability uh, to make that and then to keep it and then to sustain it. And so God, in this passage up till verse 9, he reiterates and he expands upon the promise that he had given to Abraham uh, in this um, time that he was before him um, in, in the whole thing. He tells him that he's going to be exceedingly fruitful. And I believe that's the will of God for every one of our lives. That as we would walk before him, as we would abide in him, as we would watch as the years go on and more of him is revealed to us and more of his promise is revealed to us, that the fruit then that also comes out of our life would expand. Jesus said that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. And then he said this, he said, in this is my father glorified that you would bear much fruit and that your fruit would remain. And that's the will of God for every one of our lives is that there would be fruit. Now, he doesn't say results. There's a big difference between fruit and results. God's not looking for results. He's looking for fruit. And fruit is born out over time through abiding. And that's what God wants to bring forth out of our life. He's going to bring forth fruit. And that's what he's going to do in Abraham. It's interesting here. Go ahead. Can you just clarify? Like, 
Well, if you look at Abram's life, right, what results were there? There really was, he, he, he's going to have a son, but that's as far as it's going to go in his, his viewing, his sight. The fruit won't come until he's gone. <laughs> you know, he's long gone. It's not, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's something that God does. God brings forth fruit. Like a tree doesn't bring forth its fruit by its effort. It does it by its being rooted, you know? So it's the same thing in our lives. We abide in him and the results of what comes out of our life are up to God. You know what I mean? Like we don't strive to make it happen. We abide to make it happen. You know, uh, so he goes on now after uh, reestablishing this, and then he gives to Abram, um, I don't want to say his side of it, because he didn't have a side of it, but God says part of this covenant is going to be this non-negotiable aspect uh, or, or, or um, thing of circumcision. And so watch what happens in verse 9. It says that God said then unto Abraham, he says, you shall keep my covenant, therefore, you and your seed after you in their generations. Now, he doesn't say our covenant, and that's going to be important as we uh, dig into this a little bit. It's still God's covenant, but God has something he's going to ask of Abram in this whole thing. And he says, here it is. He says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Now, I hope I don't have to explain what that is. I think we all uh, know what circumcision is. And he says, And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, or cut off the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token or a sign, a signet of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision to be done, and that, that the reason for it is because it's a sign of the covenant or the promise that God had made between him. And then the terms, he says, and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house, the family, or bought with money of any stranger, so even the, the slave or the servant or the foreigner, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant or in the cutting off of your flesh. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not uncircumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people, because he has broken uh, my covenant. Now, um, the circumcision among the Jews uh, became synonymous with even the very name of being associated with Abram uh, in this thing. Very important, uh, very huge part of it. But what is it? God says every male is to be circumcised. And he says what that is, is that you're to cut off the flesh of your foreskin. And that that is the sign of the covenant. It's to be done at eight days old. And there's to be no exceptions. Every one of, of you is to uh, do this thing. But what we understand as we look at this in the context of Abram's life, and we try to bring it now into the New Testament understanding of things, you say, okay, if Abram is an example, <laughs> we read in the New Testament that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. So what in the world 
is the eternal God putting this in the Bible for, and how does it apply to us as New Testament Christians in this? And it's important that we understand that circumcision, though it was a physical requirement for the Jews, the descendants of Abram, it absolutely is a significant spiritual sign of something much deeper that happens in the life of every child of God or everyone that relates to God in any way. It is a sign of the cutting away of the flesh in the most secret, intimate, and vulnerable place where no one sees. Now, if we talk about that physically, we're speaking of circumcision. But if we're talking about that spiritually, then it has a totally different context but it's very important. Turn to Romans. Keep a finger here and turn to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 6. Yep, Romans 6. Paul, in the book of Romans, is talking about the Christian and the Christian life and what takes place among us. And he talks about what happens um, when a person is born again and the Spirit of God comes into their life. And every one of us understands, if you're saved here, you know what it means. God comes into your life and and you've got um, this incredible uh, new life, but you also have this struggle because there's a new life that's in Christ, but there's an old man that lives inside There's an old flesh, an old way, old desires, old things. And you say, what do you do with this? Watch this. Chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So in other words, can I just go on living the way I was living, even though God's been revealed in my life and I've been forgiven of my sins? He says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. Know ye not that so many of us, as many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, crucified with him, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And here's what that means, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man, do you see those two words right there? That's the you that was born into this world apart from Christ. The you that Ephesians chapter 2 says is alienated from the life of God cut off from him, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of, by mind, and of the mind and by nature, just children of wrath, separated completely from God. That's the old man. And what he's saying to us here is that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that from now on, henceforth, we should not serve sin. For he that is dead, he says spiritually dead or spiritually, figuratively speaking, is freed from sin. 
So when we're born again, it isn't that we go on living two lives, the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit, but the life of the flesh is to be cut off. It's to be crucified with Christ on the cross. Well, then what does that look like? Look at Romans chapter 7. Just turn over with your eyes and look at verse 4. Because how does that happen? How do you become dead to the flesh that we are so familiar with? So alive in. Romans 7 verse 4. He says, Wherefore, my brothers, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, that's the old man, the first life before Jesus, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members, that's our bodies, to bring forth fruit unto death. But now, now that we're in Christ, we are delivered from the law that being dead or cut off wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In other words, there's a new life now that is contrary to the old life and the two cannot coexist. One must be cut off to make room for the other. And so the oldness of the letter must be removed so that we can walk in the newness of the Spirit. Turn the page to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. What does this look like in the life? Where does the rubber meet the road? He says this. He says, For they that are after the flesh, that is, that they're just living the old life apart from Christ, living in their sins, they do mind or think about or dwell upon the things of the flesh, the old man, the old life. But they that are after the spirit, those that have been born again, the things of the spirit. That is that we're no, the, the one who's born in the spirit is seeking after, looking towards the things of God, wants the life to please God. 4 verse 6, to be carnally minded, that's fleshly minded, the old man, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You guys know what that's like, don't you? When you get consumed in the old things and they take over your mind, it's, it's like living death. But to be in the spirit, to be thinking spiritual things, there's life and peace. Why? Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity against God. Now, do you see how he puts those two words, flesh and mind, together? Carnal mind? It's putting flesh and mind together, meaning this, is that the flesh, and this is important, pay attention, the flesh is more than just the physical. The flesh is a state of mind. The flesh is an invisible entity as much as it is a physical entity. So the carnal mind is enmity or at enmity at war against God. For it is not subjected to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. You cannot bring your flesh into subjection to the will of God. It can't be done. It is completely rebellious to God. There's only one thing you can do with your flesh. You know what it is? Kill it. That's it. Just kill it. Uh, there was a, a woman who went to a pastor, true story, um, who was suicidal. 
And she went to this pastor and she was saying how she just wanted to kill herself because she was so miserable and just, you know, giving him the whole story and that she was literally suicidal. And the pastor, um, he, he said he looked at her and he, and he smiled and he, and he said, I agree. And she said, what? He goes, I think you should do it. I think you should kill yourself. And she, she just got all, like, you're supposed to talk me back from the edge. You're trying to push me over. Like, you know, because he was, he was like, no, no, I really do. I think you should, you should do it. Kill yourself. Do it. Leave here and kill yourself. And he said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, kill it. Do it. He said, but let me ask you a question before you do that. Are you sick physically? She said, no. Are you blind? Do your eyes work okay? Yeah. How about your hearing? Hearing fine? Blood, heart, blood pressure, all that? No, I'm perfectly good, perfectly health. He said, well, he's like, there's really no sense to kill your body. It doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with it. But maybe there's someone inside that needs to die. <laughs> and that's the idea behind this, 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 uh, the, 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 the flesh needing to die. He says, um, it can't be subjected to the law of God. Verse 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. So if you've been born again, you're in the spirit of God. Now, if any man does not have the spirit of Christ, then he's none of his. You don't belong to him. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies or make your bodies live by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you, and here's the how in the whole thing, through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So through the Spirit, there's a cutting off of the old man and his deeds, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, one more verse in Romans, then we'll go back. Just turn back to chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. Verse 28. Paul says this, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying circumcision in the flesh is not what makes someone circumcised. But rather, verse 29, But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So circumcision, a cutting away of the flesh in the secret, unseen, intimate place. But what it symbolizes is the cutting away in the heart of the old man and the old life in a place where God sees and God knows and you know that it's happened and there's the evidence of a new life and of a changed life. And that evidence is that you're no longer living after, minding the things of the flesh, 
but rather your life is set towards fulfilling the will of God and knowing God and set towards spiritual things. And God says to Abram, and he says it to us, that this is a non-negotiable part of your relationship with me, is the cutting away of the old man, the forsaking and leaving of the old life, and living and aiming for and towards me. That's the will of God for every one of us, and it's non-negotiable. And if the heart is not circumcised, then what that means is that you don't belong to him. And so to give your life to Christ, you are, in a sense, saying, God, I give you permission by your Holy Spirit to cut off all that is the old man in me. And here's the amazing thing, is that God's the one that does it. Because not one of us can go into our mind and do anything in there. We can change our mind and agree and want. But Jesus said, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul would say, to will is present with me, but how to perform it, I don't find it. We've tried to change our mind. We can't change it. So what do we do? We yield. And we say, God, you can have this. And as we yield, God has it. And I can testify to you. I can't testify for you, but I can testify for me. And I could say this, is that any time in my life, there has been anything that I have honestly brought to God and said, God, I can't fix this, but I am so willing that you would change this in me. He's changed it. Things that have been impossible for me to change. Attitudes of the heart, conditions of the heart, desires and affections of the heart, brought to God, sincerely surrendered upon the altar. God changed this. He'll change it. He does it. And he says, this is my will for you and for your descendants. Now, by making this covenant of circumcision with Abram, God does something that's absolutely ingenious. He does this. He takes a promise that is universal and he makes it very individual. Because what did he say? He just said, I'm going to give this land to your seed after you as an everlasting covenant. My promise is upon you in all successive generations. That's very universal. That's every descendant of Abraham through Isaac. But by making this covenant aspect of circumcision, it becomes very individual. That God doesn't want to deal with a nation. He wants to deal with people, individuals. And it's true for us even in this day. So he gives them this covenant of circumcision. Very important for you and I that we understand and apply the spiritual aspect of it. Look at verse 15. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, thy wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. He changed her name from contentious, which is Sarai, to princess, which is Sarah. That's a good change. That's what God does in our lives. He, he changes us from uh, contentious, bitter people to royalty. And he says, and I will bless her and I will give you a son also of her. Now, I, I, we just heard that through my voice. Abraham heard this. He heard, I will give you a son through her, a son through her, a son through her, a son through her. And then God went on, and all Abraham heard was womp, 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 while he was still hearing, a son through her, a son through her. <laughs> you know, that is much like, and you can put yourself right in Abram's shoes, he's 99 years old, and it's like seeing two lines on the pregnancy test. 
<laughs> what? 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 what, what? <laughs> you know, I got to do this again. <laughs> you know, I know that feeling. Um, <laughs> and I'm not 99, you know, but I can imagine what it's like, you know. Uh, but the whole thing, you're going to have a son. A bomb is dropped on Abram here as he hears this, because not only does he find out he's going to be a father again at the ripe young age of 99, but what's resonating and connecting in his mind all at once is that the last 13 years of his life, he has been deceived into thinking that he was on the right course and trajectory wherein he had stepped in front of God those 13 years ago, and now he's got this whole thing on his hands that he doesn't know what to do with or what to make of it. And so you're going to have a son by her and I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Now, by saying this, that she's going to be the mother of nations and that the kings will come through her, God is effectively communicating to Abram that Ishmael is not my plan because it's not going to be through him. So then Abraham fell on his face. So he had gotten up and now he falls again. (laughs) I know that feeling. (laughs) And he laughed and he said in his heart. So he doesn't even say it out loud. God reads the heart. We're going to see God reading hearts a lot in Genesis. He says in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is 90 years old now, bear? And so pointing out that they were past the age wherein they could naturally bear. And God waiting until they were there because he's almighty God. And Abram said now unto God, so this comes out of his mouth, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He prays and he says, God, can we just use Ishmael? Can, can we please? Do we have to do the infant years again? I don't want to buy diapers I mean, can't we just, we adopted, you know, he could be the one, we could just make some adjustments here. You know, please let Ishmael live before you. Just use what I have done to bring your will to bear within my life. Use the effort that I've put forth to help you to bring your plan to pass. Let's make this a partnership, God, in what you've done. Bless my effort, God, please. And God said, verse 19, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son indeed, and you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac means laughter. Chapter 18, Sarah's going to laugh when she hears that she's going to get pregnant too. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. It's going to be through Isaac. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. That's not a good thing. And I will make him fruitful. Not a good thing. And I will multiply him exceedingly. Not a good thing. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. That nation exists even today in the the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and Yemen and all those uh, areas down there. In that um, God kept his promise that he made towards uh, Abraham concerning Ishmael. But, verse 21, my covenant or my promise will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto you at this set time 
in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Now, the rest of the chapter, those last uh, five verses there, just describe the circumcision process. That's just the cleanup. You can uh, read those verses on your own when he goes through and, and he fills it. But God leaves off at this point, speaking with Abraham as he gives to him um, this whole thing. Now, here, what's going on in, in this uh, in this this portion uh, of things here is that we see Abraham who is content to stay right where he is. He's come to a certain place within his life. He's been in a, in a, in a path for 13 years now, and he's content to stay in that path. And God is saying, we're going to take things in a different direction uh, in this because it's going to be through Isaac or through Sarah and through Isaac. So what's the deal here? Ishmael in the Bible becomes a picture of our effort, the things that we do to try to help God. Isaac is a symbol of promise, God being able to perform what God says he's going to perform. If you read the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul explains this very clearly. So, you know, I'm not just making this up and saying, well, that fits me. No, Paul says that, that Ishmael is a picture of the law, my work that merits God's blessing never works. He says, Isaac was the son of promise. Absolute impossibility for Abram to help God in this. He's past the time. It can't work. Romans 4 says that he was as good as dead. Even his sperm wouldn't be able to have children at this point if it wasn't for, for God's intervention in the whole thing. He was as good as dead. Isaac is the son of promise, not of our effort. Abram is content to let Ishmael be the one. God is not. God says it's got to be of promise. Now, in some ways, Ishmael would be better for Abram in the short term. Because in, in his mind, okay, um, he, he's done it. He, it's already done. It's there. And he can just go with it. God can just adjust what Abram's done and, and make it happen. But with Isaac... It means a couple things. It means, first of all, it means some humiliation for Abram because it means he has to admit that his best efforts weren't good enough for God. It means that he has to admit that his works aren't sufficient to bring him into perfection, to bring about um, God's plan. It also means he's going to have to have more faith. He's going to have to believe God for something that is absolutely impossible in the, in the standards of man. And it also means that he's going to have no control over it. Ishmael, there's a lot of control. Abram made that happen. But with Isaac, there's no control at all. I think the same thing holds true in our lives as it concerns not just our salvation, but also the plans that God has for us. We want God to bless our navigation of things, to bring us through it. There's a little bit of control. There's a little bit of effort. There's a little bit of pride. Well, God, through my ingenuity, through my ability, my intelligence, I was able to work these things, and your blessing was on it, and I know you were with me, and you played a part. God says, no, no, no can't be that way. It's going to be my promise completely. It's going to be my will, and it's going to be for my glory. It's going to be of me, my idea. It's going to be through me. It's going to be my power, and it's going to be for me, being that I'm the one that's going to get the glory for all of this. You get to enjoy it. Now, on the one hand, that's harder for us because it means that we let go. We just have to believe. We, just, we have no glory. There's nothing in it. But in the greater part, it's the best thing that God could ever do for us is to not make his plans contingent upon anything in us. 
Because if there's any part that we play in it, then that leaves us on the hook to do those things the right way and to be perfect, not in the biblical sense, but in the legalistic sense. And God won't have it that way for us. And so God removes all pressure from Abraham and also from us by making it through Isaac. So what if we look at this whole chapter and we see a couple things. We see circumcision and we see Isaac. And we look at that in the light of Abram's whole life and then we lay it over our own. What do we see? What is God saying to us through this and this? He's saying four things. Number one, he's saying that our lives will be in him, his will, and not our own. He's saying secondarily that our lives will be according to his plan and not our own. He's saying to us thirdly that our lives will bear fruit in his time and not our time. If you look again in verse 21, he says, My covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. That there was a set time wherein God was going to establish the promise that he had made. And that there was nothing Abraham really could do until that time came. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1, it says this. We all know this, this verse. It says that there is a time for every purpose under heaven. And what that verse means is that God has a plan and a purpose for every one of our lives. There's a reason for it. But attached to that purpose for our lives, there's also a time. And what you have in God's will in things is that you have our lives going in a certain way and you have God's timing going in a certain way. And much of our lives are awaiting for the time and the purpose to intersect each other. And until time and purpose meet, life can feel very frustrating because you can think, well, I, I have things written in my heart. There's desires that I have. There's, there's an unction. There's something unfulfilled. I feel as though there's a mission, but I don't know what it is. And all of that's true within us, and we don't know why. We have gifts, but they don't make sense. And so we, we're, we're moving along, and we're just waiting. But when time, God's time, meets God's purpose and what he made us for, at that point, you have an explosion of fruitfulness, and nothing can hold it back. And so we wait for purpose and time to come together so, so much within our life. And so the time now for the promise to be fulfilled through the coming of Isaac, that comes in Abram's life. And time will always come in our lives. And God calls us to be patient and to wait. And then finally, God says that my, your life is going to be governed by my promise and not by your effort. So God's will, God's plan, God's time, and God's promise. And he will always do better for us than we would do for ourselves every time. And what he asks of us is this. And these are the things just right in this chapter that God asks of Abraham, that we would walk with him, that we'd walk before him, that we would cut off the old man and have circumcised hearts that we would live in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That we would believe and walk by faith and not by sight. And that we would wait on his timing and things that we might see his best will performed on our behalf. That's the will of God. Questions, comments, thoughts? Mm -hmm.